a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. In this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recording from a recent installment in our ongoing Faculty Spotlight series, a series we call Office Hours, featuring Pedro Matos. Pedro is a member of the Darden faculty and the academic director for the Richard A. Mayo Center for Asset Management here at the Darden School of Business. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk with Pedro about his background, what led him to Darden, some of the classes he currently teaches, his role as academic director for Darden Capital Management, his interest in ESG investing, and much, much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Pedro Matos. Well, welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for the latest installment in our ongoing faculty conversation series, what we call Office Hours. I'm Brett Twitty, member of the Admissions Committee here at the Darden School of Business, and pleased to be joined uh, today all the way from Barcelona uh, from the PRI conference, as you can see um, by his background, Pedro Matos. And uh, Pedro is a Darden faculty member here, and he's also the academic director for the Richard A. Mayo Center for Asset Management at the Darden School of Business. So as we said in our promotional emails, we're going to get into a lot of things. If you're curious about ESG investing, what Pedro's been up to at, at this particular conference, uh, what some of the classes he teaches, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this conversation. Uh, we'll just say as we get started here, um, first uh, 10, 15 minutes or so, we're going to talk about Pedro's background and then kind of transition into, you know, the classes that he teaches, um, ESG, some of these things uh, that he researches on as well. Uh, so if you have questions as we go along, please feel free to ask in the q and I'll keep an eye on that. Uh, but Pedro, let me get out of the way here and allow you to introduce uh, yourself. So uh, you're calling from the PRI conference. What What is the PRI conference? Well, thanks, Brett, for the chance, and thanks, everyone, for joining. So technically, I'm the, at the airport, Barcelona Airport, but I'm, I'm, I just came out of this big conference center. And after two years of hiatus during the pandemic, the principles for responsible investment, and I'll, I'll speak what they actually do, they've um, just had their flagship PI in person, and, and you could also join online, but it was a, a the world's biggest gathering on responsible investing or ESG investing. So what is the responsible investing? Just said uh, stages. You go through these principles. Principle number one is that you incorporate environmental, E, social, S, and corporate governance, G, issues into investment analysis and decision. And then they have other principles and you can walk through that, but they are, you know, certainly the stage of how does one incorporate, uh, you know, environmental, social, and governance, ESG principles into uh, investing. And how was the conference? I'm sure it was great to be back in person after a couple of yes, years of hiatus. Yeah, I can tell you that I wasn't used to being auditoriums with 5,000 people anymore. Uh, and uh, it's cool. Like Barcelona is a great design city. The conference center is beautiful. And uh, we were literally on the beach. Um, and, um, every, you know, but it's just mind-blowing that we were away for, for three years. The last one I had been was in Paris 2019. Before that was... Um, San Francisco, and next year, hopefully, we're, we're, we'll be in Tokyo. So they move around the world, and uh, you know, you get people flying from all over. 
but there was also an online version. Some folks from China had to connect through through Zoom, you know, remotely and so forth. And I want to decode your background a little bit here for people oh. who who are yes. wondering. Um, so it's been a big week for you. Uh, in the lower, well, on my left hand uh, corner. It's you on a stage. So you were a speaker at this, a yeah. panelist at this conference. And then you also had an Economist article published, correct? Yes. This happened you know, on the same day, pretty much. So there's a, really the big stage. That's the 5,000 auditorium you you know you expect from a large uh, city's conference center. That's not where Pedro spoke. I spoke down here in one of the side rooms. And there are you know, a few hundred people. But... Um, and uh, on the what's called the academic network. So we present, we bridge the world between academic research on ESG and practitioners on ESG. And we have, you know, sessions together. But at the same time, uh, the this weekend's Economist, the, the flagship, you know, financial uh, publication, they actually covered my research, which put me a little bit on the spot because my research says that ESG investing is not the same in the US as it is elsewhere. And if in a, in some ways, so the title here is uh, green, you know, dubious green f- uh, funds are rampant in America. It's very catchy title. The papers and the research is more tamed, <laughs> but basically saying there's a disconnect between what is USG investing, ESG investing, I apologize, in the US versus in other places in the world where it's, perhaps more pervasive or it's more mature. All right. Well, we might get into that a little bit later um, in the in this sure. session, but tell us a little bit more about you and your background, Pedro. Of course. Yeah. It's very hard to say who, who's Pedro. <laughs> I've lived uh, and worked in four countries. Um, I've been a bit of a creature of globalization. Uh, so I was born in Portugal and, uh, you know, my family is still there. That's my next stop as I fly through through Lisbon back to the States. Um, and I spent my, you know, I was born there, but then I spent part of my youth in Macau. At the time, it was um, a Portuguese territory. It's very next to Hong Kong. And as they decide to return both Hong Kong and Macau, Macau was also decided to return to China, of course. And so I actually witnessed the early stages of China's economic uh, transition in the, this late 1980s, I would say. To me, that was like super powerful to see, you know, this huge transformation. Whereas when I, whenever I go back to Europe, everything is the same. So I go back to my hometown, Lisbon. Those, those buildings have been around for hundreds of years and, and everything, you know, looks the same. In China, everything was changing in my early years. I, I moved back and studied in Portugal. Uh, I can tell you more later about my what I studied and and then when when you know my professional career. Uh, but Portugal was transforming itself at the time as well. We were joining the euro, the currency. We had joined the EU before that, and uh, literally it was a, a time of transformation in my own country. We were you know becoming more developed. I did my grad school in INSEAD, which is a business school, competes with Darden as on the global stage for well-known MBA program. But I, my MBA turned into a PhD uh, that took a little bit longer. And then I moved um, to the state. So I became a faculty first in California, University of Southern California. 
And then I moved uh, later to to Virginia, to the University, to Darden School of Business. Uh, and I've been there for the last 11 years. Uh, now, if you count all these countries, etc., some people might count four. So Portugal, you know, China, if you like, um, France and the U.S. Some people might count five if you think that Virginia and California are two different countries. Uh, but uh, it's been really a privilege to, you know, to... Uh, to be able to work and live and uh, experience all this uh, different environments. But I can tell you, you know, Charlottesville is a great place. <laughs> so, Well, I had to apologize to Pedro uh, for scheduling this at the same time as the Portugal-South Korea game. So, uh, Yes, for, for the World <laughs> Cup. You, yes, for any of you who are following the World Cup, uh, let us know if there are any updates in the Q&A. So, um, Pedro, an interesting question to, always, to ask faculty is just how did you get interested in finance, um, this subject matter area where you've obviously devoted your, your life and career? Yeah. yeah, so I started uh, taking a lot of classes during my econ undergrad, economics degree. And um, I, you know, I actually decided to go into a career into asset management, something we'll talk about later. I was um, in Portugal at a reasonably sized um, fund manage, mutual fund manager. And, uh, but then I actually jumped over and took another look at financial markets from another side, from the bond market side. So I was recruited to issue government bonds for Portugal, for my own country, for the Republic of Portugal. And then a little bit later, I also consulted with the World Bank. So I was taken as an expert, given all that we had done in the Portuguese bond market. And um, I went with the World Bank to LATAM. So I went to Colombia, Brazil, Peru. Uh, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Most of the teams at the World Bank had people with PhDs and master's degrees, etc. And I was the only one without one. And, you know, it, it kind of became obvious that, you know, on the next stepping stone, I had to go to grad school. But I confess, once I went to grad school, I started hesitating, should I go back to industry? And the short answer is no. I just said, you know, school is so great. Why don't I stay in school forever and <laughs> become a, a professor? So, and and that you know sort of led me to the first job in the U.S. Uh, at USC and now here at Darden. Well, what led you to Darden? How did you decide this is where I want to be? Yeah, there are many different business schools out there, um, many different ways, and INSEAD is one of place where there's a lot of connections between the world of practice and the academia, and and I particularly like Darden in that respect. Um, Darden also has a global perspective. Um, it has an international focus. And I, I really like a, my academic life as this composite be, between research, engagement with practitioners, and teaching. And so having that, had that professional background first, teaching some of those materials myself in, in class, um, you know, I continue to learn from the students, of course, and they're diverse by backgrounds. But but really, for Darden for me is this unique combination of um, you know, everything I, you know, I think we we should do as a school, which is have thought leadership, uh, do the research, the hard work, 
bring that to practice like I'm doing here in, in Barcelona at this uh, flagship conference, learn from practice and then bring that to the classroom and to the teaching, but also then learn from the students and then go, go back and actually, you know, go, go on this circle again. And basically, as I said, I want to stay in school forever and, and sort of be learning and, and, you know, getting insights from others. And this is like a perfect loop for me uh, and, and I hope for, for many others as well. I appreciate you noting that point about the, the research and this connection to practical affairs. That's something that's come through in on all of these office hours conversations, the extent to which when faculty are looking at things and working on kind of problems and doing their research, they're thinking about actual practitioners. It's not some sort of pie in the sky, ivory tower type situation. So um, we've yeah. got a question about the Mayo Center. It's a good time to kind of transition a little bit to talk about uh, the Mayo Center. You're the academic director for the Mayo Center for Asset Management. Tell us a little bit more about what the Mayo Center is. Yeah, so it's named after the Richard A. Mayo, who was an alum, um, and he was a leader of a very large asset manager, and luckily a Darden graduate. And he approached the school and you know the faculty around this creation of a center, a center of excellence around the study and the practice of asset management. So what do we mean by, by asset management? Just to sort things out. It's sort of like preserving and growing wealth for investors. Um, and so how, how do we, you know, advance that in, in at the center? We do hopefully world-class research so things that one day, like this weekend, shows up in The Economist would be considered, you know, high-level research. But we also develop educational programs, and I'll talk, talk about that, the activities. And we support a lot of the student clubs and the experiential learning there as well. So as I said, we're one of the centers of excellence. There are others on innovation, et cetera. Um, and we, we fall under that you know, overall Darden's mission to, you know, when we develop this investment community or help develop it, we think about re responsible stewards of the wealth and inspiring, you know, leaderships. Um, and, you know, so we do have that, you know, overarching Darden mission behind this, but we are, more directed at at the world of asset management um, and i can speak more what what is asset management perhaps um, so i don't invest directly myself i've you know chose i i did that as when i was uh, more day-to-day -day in in financial markets i had a bloomberg terminal and i have everything you know and i felt like i you know maybe i have had a slight edge here and there to uh, buy and, and sell. I actually bought and sell futures rather than stocks. But um, but most most in, most investors um, they hire external managers. So what we do is I, I actually most of my savings I, I I have that through a pension plan. The pension plan itself hires you know a mutual fund manager or an external manager. More high net worth individuals they hire you know perhaps um, private bank, the private bank may uh, get them more unique fund offerings like hedge funds, 
private equity and alternative asset classes. So I, I don't buy directly uh, shares or bonds or you know all these financial securities, but I, I invest through these um, asset managers or investment management companies. And they've become very big. So it's not just me, it's pretty much around the world, not just in the US and not, not just here in Europe. And now this, what we call institutional investors, so asset management firms. So they're investors managing money for other people. They, they now hold the majority of the shares around the world and the majority of, of you know, uh, publicly listed companies. And um, it's, it's much higher even in the US. It's like 75% upwards of that. They help me. Why? Because they help me diversify. What does that mean? I don't, I would not have the capacity to, capability even to analyze hundreds of stocks or, or thousands of uh, opportunities out there. And the same goes for bonds. So they, they, they do that. And they do that uh, not just locally, for, for me, for example, in US stocks, but across the world. And, and they become crucial uh, suppliers of capital to firms all over the world. And, and uh, you know, a lot of my research focuses on, on this, this, um, this set of investors, the institutional investors, the asset management firms. Well, thank you for, for sharing all that. It's always helpful. Sometimes we worry uh, when we have these kind of business school conversations, something like asset management, people are like, what, what is exactly does that mean? So thank you for, for walking yeah. us through all of that. Um, you are also the faculty advisor to Darden Capital Management. This is one of the experiential learning opportunities that exist for students here at the Darden School of Business. So um, tell us a little bit more about what Darden Capital Management is. Sure. Um, yeah, so we, this is one of the educational opportunities you have here around asset management, or I should say responsible asset management. Uh, so we select 28 second year students uh, to actually be in charge of managing and investing six investment portfolios for the Darden School Foundation. Uh, they earn credit for their participation as portfolio managers of the fund. And I can walk you through our latest additions to the fund, which is focused on real estate investing. But this all started in the 90s and the Darden School Foundation recognized that the best preparation for careers in this industry and having hands-on uh, investment management experience was they earn marked some money and that formed the overall endowment and allocated it to the students. So the students would uh, manage this. As of this more recent um, quarter, the assets have grown to over $25 million across the six funds. So we are one of the largest programs of its kind in the world. I think uh, the largest. We have you know, all these individual uh, funds. Uh, you can find all of that on our website, the Mayor Center website. Um, and they focus on different strategies, value investing, uh, international investing, ESG investing, which we will talk about soon. Uh, real estate investing was the, the latest addition. Um, and uh, you know they do all the investment analysis, so they pitch stocks and then make a determination uh, to add or not to the portfolio and they manage the portfolio. So how, how do they buy and how do they scale down? When do they exit? 
And every year, the this 28 students rotate. So the, then the next class comes about. And I can walk you through a little bit how they manage this on a, on a daily basis, but they basically meet uh, once a week, they examine new ideas, adjust the portfolio, and um, they also run it as a club. And that club um, it sponsors um, some events. So uh, leading professionals come back to school and um, or, or they participate also in external stock pitch competitions at, and compete against other teams from other schools. Um, and um, and they they network also for career opportunities. They have um, you know uh, job tracks. Uh, they they do everything else like um, you know stay in touch with alumni. Uh, that, that there's been several hundreds uh, by now uh, that have gone through this program, and they publish a quarterly news newsletter. And so forth. So there, there's, and what I'm doing is very little, I should say. So I stay there as their faculty advisor. So I'm uh, somewhat responsible. I will assign a grade um, uh, on an individual basis based on the quality of the pitches, um, which I observe and participate. But also, I will, I would, um, you know, collect 360 feedback from the other students and so forth. Um, so I don't know if you want to hear also about the latest edition. So how do you, you know, how, how does each of these funds come about? So we've just recently launched a new fund, which is called the Colonnade Fund. And that's a very Virginian or, you know, Jeffersonian name. Colonnades are the, you know, columns uh, in the architectural design of our campus. And because this is real estate, it's like the built environment. This is, we, we're, we're investing into real assets, buildings can be, you know, um, companies that it themselves invest in industrial parks or offices or, um, housing or whatnot. So, uh, hotels, lodging and so forth. Uh, and uh, but they do this through what's called real real estate investment trusts, which are listed in in public markets in the U.S. and all over the world. And they they do the same type of analysis that the other funds do. The bottoms up research, which you know goes through the the financials, what is attractive um, uh, of each of these possible equity real estate, uh, real estate investment trusts. And they, they strive to hold an, an allocation towards those, those uh, REITs. Um, but they can also venture outside REITs and go to any company that's real estate adjacent. Um, and there are many, you know, things that are real estate heavy, but not necessarily technically a REIT. Um, and they seek to out, outperform a benchmark, uh, sort of a, an index uh, that they're measured against. Um, and we kind of, you know, kind of reward them, but not, you know, not monetarily, of course, that they would outperform, uh, you know, what uh, what the mandate calls for, this index. Uh, but they fall under the, you know, broader goals of the Darden Capital Management uh, again, hands-on experience because, in, you know, getting careers into real estate or broader investment management around real estate is is hard, 
and you can kind of leverage this experiential learning into career search. Um, as I said, there's uh, there've been numerous alumni have spoken to this particular uh, fund. There's been training by former alumni also on this, and that opens the door to how do I, you know, consider a possible uh, career in in this space. So a couple practical questions for you that we've gotten here in the Q&A. So some people naturally hearing about this are like, gosh, this is really cool. How do people get involved uh, with garden oh, capital management? Yes. So they apply in, and that's going to come up now in uh, February and uh, the sort, of, sort of halfway through their first year, they, they first start to participate in the, in the club activities purely as club members. Uh, so they come in and sit on the back and, you know, and watch the second year's, uh, pitch stocks. They ask questions, etc. They come through the club events, um, hear other speakers. They participate. They're happy hours. There's, there's also, you know, lots of fun around this, this club, of course, fun activities. Uh, and they, you know, they get, they get excited and then they put together an application, which is, is short, like a one pager. Uh, where does telling me the faculty advisor, how does this fit their Darden journey and their career, you know, and so forth. Um, and so then I, I look through those. I have to make very hard choices and many times because I want to, to bring people that have no experience. And, and so this can be that transformational learning experience for them together with people who have experience because at Darden, a lot of the learning is peer learning. It's not from Pedro, the faculty to the students um, in, is as much that as it is between the students. So then I have to assemble teams. So there's four members of each fund team, a senior portfolio manager and three individual portfolio managers, and they have to work as a team through the academic year. So I want to make sure I have a good diversity of backgrounds, of uh, you know skills and so forth. Uh, or people who are seeking those skills and seeking uh, that, those learning opportunities so that there's this peer learning between them. And then there's um, four, four other students that are called the executive team, a CEO, um, a chief investment officer, a director of research, and a CFO who manage other activities for this. Like they, they, for example, they do the training. So they train everyone else across the funds on systems like, as I said, Bloomberg, um, um, FactSet, you know, um, S&P, everything that we have, we have basically a capital markets room at, at Darden. And there's a lot of financial terminals, financial data, and you, you get some training on how do I get all the financials I need to do to conduct the investment analysis. So a lot of that is, is held, is taken care by the executive team with my help. Um, and then, um, and then they also put together a, conf a conference themselves, which is uh, a student competition at, at Darden, uh, at Virginia Investing Conference. Uh, investment competition, sorry, and that where, you know, they, they organize locally one of the best uh, stock pitch competitions where school, schools from all over the world also come in. So there's, uh, you know, all these other activities that the executive team uh, manages. So I have to look for 28 students 
but I usually have a very hard time uh, making this uh, because there are a lot more applications than just the 28, of course. Uh, well, as I mentioned, we've gotten some really good questions about Darden Capital Management. I want to stay here for just a, uh, just a few more minutes before we go sure. on to talking about some of the other classes uh, that, that you teach. Um, so one question is, okay, you mentioned that you know students who may not have any prior experience uh, with asset management, this kind of blend of students, some with a lot of experience, some with no prior experience. How do students even orient to something like asset management if they if they don't know anything about it previously? They're here to learn. Like, does it, it come yeah. from their first year finance class? Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm curious. So I also teach in the in those classes. So I know that a lot of the tools we use there um, can be used for security analysis to basically make a determination whether one should buy or make an investment into a stock or one should not buy or sell a stock and you can even short the stock. I don't want to go too technical here, but we, we, the tools are learned through the first year, but the stu the students also learn with, from each other through the club events, right? So they come into the club, to, to the fund meetings. So they learn from the second years as, as each of the second years pitch stocks from their discussion. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, once you're selected, which you, you are selected, so if uh, you apply in February, you're selected at the end of February, you'll have a period from uh, March, April, and into early May, which is our last quarter, where you sit together, the 28 students of the first and the second year are co-managing the fund. And you will actually co-pitch with second year. So the, your first pitch is together with a second year that has gone through the cycle before. Um, and, um, you know, and you also learn about all the stocks that have been in the portfolio. So that whole, you know, uh, we write book reports, uh, like summarizing what's the thesis uh, for, for holding for each particular investment. Uh, what are the updates? What has what has played out what it, might something have broken the thesis or the original idea behind the, the investments um and so you start to get that uh in your last quarter of the first year you're still not earning credit but you are already taking uh you know part of the of the fun and then you are after the summer you you come full actually april 1st you're formally the new team but after the summer you start earning the course credit for for you well i love what you shared about the second year first year uh, interactions that's uh, for our attendees here who are just learning about darden this cross-class connection uh, this is a big part of the darden experience you can look at it in a lot of different ways whether it's the sort of academic experience as pedro was talking about here it's also very present in the career um process, uh, second year coaches that uh, you may have heard about these like students who actively coach first year students as they're going through that recruitment process. There's all kinds of clubs and organizations structured around career interests that also help with that second year to first year knowledge share. And of course, just, you know, socially, right? This is part of the Darden, Darden community interaction too. So um, another good question that we've gotten here is, well, all right, your first year, people probably heard about the case method and the core curriculum, and then you move into electives. And, and this is the structure of all of our MBA formats here. And many of the electives in the second year 
will have an experiential component to them. Darden Capital Management is a very vivid example of this. How do you see experiential opportunities like Darden Capital Management fitting within the overall academic experience here at Darden? Yeah. So the, the case method is, you know, I, I think about it as like learning a foreign language. Here I am in Barcelona, and of course they will insist not to speak Spanish, but Catalan, but like the only way you can really learn, and I, maybe I've been privileged in that respect, is to go and live in that foreign country. So you go into a marketing class. I'm you know, not a marketing expert, but then I'm all of a sudden in this different world or an operations class or or a strategy class, etc. And the same goes for finance. So first you go on this journey where you start to sort of experience different countries, different languages, and you kind of, uh, you know, learning that language um, in a very uncomfortable environment, which is like everyone seems to know it except you. Um, but it's still controlled. We still have the case and the case facts are the f- case facts. And, and there's, you know, some, some sense of what is the appropriate decision that the group will, will reach. But that's not nowhere close to the real world. The real world does not have the case written for you. And, um, and so this is a one level up of like that journey of like, you know, going in these journeys, uh, you know, across all these foreign lands in all these different places. But now you're faced with, you know, even more uncertainty, which is um, you know, thrown at you of like, you have to make a choice. You are, in the, in the case of the Arden Capital Management, the experiential course, you're given capital to go out and actually invest. And you have to make, there's no sitting still. Sitting still is not an option in, in capital markets. So you have to make a, a choice. And, um, and that is, um, you know, the, the, the advantage of the, some of the second year more experiential courses is to go off from, you know, one level up from the case map deck, uh, to, uh, to deal with in more, you know, real world environment. All right, well, we're going to transition and talk about a couple of electives that you're involved with. The first is a reading seminar, which these are also part of the elective uh, lineup. Um, the reading seminar you're involved with is the Mayo Center Reading Seminar, and you you lead that along with Dick Mayo, uh, Richard Mayo, who's been mentioned here, uh, as well as a former dean of the Darden School of Business, Bob Bruner, who is a big reader himself. Every, mm-hmm. I think, December or so, he puts out, these are my favorite books of the year list, which is great. Um, so tell us a little bit more about this reading seminar. Yeah, so I've been very privileged to learn a lot from Bob, who's, our, you know, we just awarded him a service award for his time at Darden and uh, is um, and. And Dick and, and uh, Dick Mayo and the namesake for the Mayo Center and and Bob Brunner, they they had started um, kind of a, a little bit the, what Thomas Jefferson envisioned as a reading seminar, which is you know uh, you meet once a month, you go and uh, and read books uh, and discuss books um, as a as a as a team so then they started from kind of the history of uh, financial markets 
And then where I came along was uh, merging that idea with the, the kind of the history of asset management and compare different strategies and the different evolution of asset management. So in asset management, we have two schools of thought pretty much. Do you trust the human or do you trust the method? <laughs> so to, uh, human would be a fundamental approach, fundamental analysis where, you know, kind of what I described Arden Capital Management does. Uh, you go through bottoms up research on the company's financials and you come with a recommendation and make a decision. But there's also more quantitative uh, tools uh, and quantitative asset managers who do more statistical analysis, use uh, more, um, you know, other tools that have come, some of which have come from academia, academic research, and some of it from other fields and not beyond finance. So, uh, as I said, we, you know, Bob, uh, Dick, and myself, we pick books that we think are important, or we ourselves are very interested to to read on the on all these different topics. On that first part of value invest of um, fundamental investing, a core book is is a book around value investing. Value investing is kind of the foundation of um, you know how we do financial security analysis, financial analysis. Uh, so. There's legendary um, Graham, and then there was Buffett, Warren Buffett. Some of you might have heard the name. Uh, he's into his 90s. He still draws huge crowds into Omaha every every year. Uh, so that that type of philosophy. So we we read the book on that. But then there's uh, there's an evolution, and some investors instead of looking for value, they look for growth. Uh, so like for example the the latest book we, we had in the series was on the platform companies. So what are platform companies? Facebooks, the now called Meta, uh, the um, Google, also now called Alphabet, um, you know, uh, Amazon and, you know, uh, Netflix, etc. This type of, of companies. And they, they've become winners and losers in this age of tech titans. And so what is, you know, when we started, of course, several years ago, they were on the way up through the pandemic even more so. And now they're kind of coming down. So this tension between these companies that are very growth oriented versus companies that are more value oriented is, um, you know, we handle with these two books. And then, for example, just the next book um, is beyond public markets or publicly listed companies to private markets, what the growth of Silicon Valley, of venture capital, the growth of, you know, private investing. Um, and so there's a, a recent book called The Power Law, which we, we read. And now actually in this, this coming week, so as I fly back, the, the uh, I don't have it with me here, but the book we're reading is on ESG investing. And so um, it's actually, uh, you know, my... Um, to be read on the plane, <laughs> to finish on the plane, which is um, something we can talk about later, but it's a more hot topic these days. So we kind of take the history of value growth to like modern day with ESG investing, et cetera. And then on the second half of the of the course, we, we look up into what's called quantitative or rules-based investing. So that you may hear about index funds or 
rules-based, you know, index strategies, which just follow a formula or like I, I buy the 500 largest companies and I just track what's called the S&P 500, um, you know, US um, stock market by just holding those 500 stocks. And that that is, there are some legendary firms out there, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, that um, have be amassed uh, now trillions. So the book is called Trillions, as you could guess, and how the sort of Wall Street renegades, the people who are using formulas or index funds instead of like the, the traditional form of investing have changed finance forever. So that's uh, the next book in January. Then we have another book on quants. Quants are like math whiz or or you know, nerdy, um, more academics that then go go to the to Wall Street and they kind of destroy it. <laughs> I'm kidding, but they they you know sort of uh, 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 look try to solve the market or try to figure out what is it that um, works in you know with math and 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 statistical tools um, and launch sort of this quant revolution and then. There's a, a biography of a very uh, well-known um, quant manager called um, uh, Jim Simons. And then finally, we are also looking into the future. Uh, we have a book around this, um, digital assets and decentralized finance, which is called uh, The Future of Money. And uh, we literally just hosted the author of that book as one of the keynotes of our investing conference at the Mayor Center. We, so I was very lucky to read the book and then invite the author and, uh, you know, have a conversation uh, as well with the students um, uh, in October. So that's, that. you know, that's uh, kind of the, the list of books. Um, I enjoy the course a lot for for a number of reasons. I don't do most of the work again. The students do the work. They they will meet with me this Monday, for example, and they go through uh, their plan to facilitate the session. Um, and so I'm curious. Like I shared with them my The Economist article because the next book is on on ESG, and I you know I'm curious uh, what's their current take on ESG from the book, from other readings. Uh, you know, other articles that I shared with the students, but it's on them to like lead us for, uh, is it four hours, I believe? So, you know, of uh, a, a, a full evening program. And we do this actually at the historical farm in, in rural Virginia, which is beautiful uh, to uh, to do this. And we'll have break for dinner and, you know, do all these uh, unique things. So this class is small because of the high touch aspect of it. So I only have 12 to 14 students per year. But um, again, you apply for this class, as, as Brad said, um, at the end of the first year, such that you can take this class through your second year. Well, I think what you just shared there gives us a natural entree into talking about ESG and your interest in uh, what you mentioned earlier, environmental, social, and governance in investing. You also teach a hot topic elective, hot topics in finance. Um, and I'm, no doubt ESG is part of that, as, as you mentioned. And yeah. it feels like the conversation here in the U.S. around ESG, particularly in the past week or so, has really started uh, to, to percolate. So how did you um, get interested in ESG? 
Yeah. So some of it, as Brad said, pointed out, is also from our alumni in the space. So I had another elective which I teach, which is called Hot Topics in Finance. And, you know, the more I asked alumni uh, to come back and, and basically teach uh, current topics in finance, many of them started talking about ESG, ESG, ESG. And as, as you said, it's very much in the news in the U.S. There are many controversies around investment managers, um, whether they're doing ESG or not on the corporate side as well. You might have heard Elon Musk, you know, tweet about that ESG is a scam after Tesla was cut from the major S&P uh, ESG index. There's some regulatory uh, actions. The SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, is is uh, going over greenwashing uh, with some asset managers. So the question is, what is what is supposed? And and so you know, same here in Europe. Uh, there's been regulators going after Deutsche's asset management uh, in the UK, etc. Um, so what is ESG? The, uh, you know, the let's let's start through those words. Uh, so E. So the idea is that increasingly you have to go beyond the financial data, the traditional what's traditionally reflected in traditional accounting. And that's still what we teach in the core, right? We still teach traditional account, not traditional, but modern accounting, I should say. Uh, and we should, we also teach traditional, you know, valuation of companies uh, through our, you know, uh, first year uh, finance course. But that might be missing other things. And that's where ESG comes in. What is it missing? The companies may have environmental footprints. How? So that's the E, E for environment. Carbon footprint, the carbon emissions of the, those companies, they, or other pollutions or resource usage. So those are environmental, that we call them externalities or, or things that the company's operations affect others. In the, in particular, the natural environment first. On the social dimension, there are many social concerns. A firm's relations with its workforce, with its customers, with the local, the communities it operates on. Um, and that those have reason all over the world. Uh, many issues on, particularly now around the pandemic, for example. Um, you know, how, how companies treat their workers. Um, you know, how, how in the communities, etc. And then finally, governance, G. And that's how the companies align with the interest of um, shareholders. Uh, how independent is the board? How are manager, management incentives? And sort of the ESG idea is to capture what other, the other factors and risks might be there on the environmental, social, and governance dimension that uh, we need to address when we think about investing. And the idea is that many of these things could have been addressed by the government, like, let's say, you know, climate change, or uh, uh, to stay with the most uh, mo most controversial uh, in the, you know, uh, but, uh, but we're not making enough progress on this. So we're kind of leveraging the private capital uh, to achieve those develop those sustainable. So you also hear the word sustainable, responsible, ESG is sort of encompassing all this. So on the one hand, you have investors who are now managing more and more assets according to this ESG principles I, I'll talk about later. But you also have, you know, um, you know, 
corporations talking about ESG uh, or when they, you know, they talk about what is the purpose of the corporation? How does it handle its customers, employees, suppliers and communities? So the stakeholders of the company or should it just, you know, um, be there for shareholders? So that's that's how, you know, um, I would frame ESG. And for me, it's been, of course, many ESG high profile scandals have occurred in the many, you know, throughout uh, many years, like here in Europe, Volkswagen had the diesel gate emission test scandal. You had oil, oil spills in the US, like BP horizon. You had, you know, Facebook with its, um, data privacy bridge or, uh, you know, wirecard fraud here in, in, in Europe. And so there's been a lot of controversies and, and the pandemic has also, you know, added a few. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so I went and, and, you know, uh, my own journey into this was I was asked by the CFA Institute to write, um, a report on ESG and responsible investing around the world. And I took a look at, over, you know, several hundred academic papers on this, but also, um, you know, um, but also looked into you know, what is the list of ESG issues? Uh, what are, what are ESG standards? How do you measure these things? Uh, what, what, what's most important? So what I came out with was climate change seems to be the most important. And does the physical risk of climate, like the losses as, as that uh, materializes, but also the transition risk of how we adapt in uh, the technologies, um, you know, uh, from oil and gas to renewables and, and, you know, uh, and so investors care about that, not just for those risks, but also for, from for the third risk, I would say is regulation. They worry, you know, that the EU here has a, a European Green Deal. Uh, and the U.S. is also talking, the SEC is now also coming out and the Department of Labor on the pension assets. So there's a lot of, um, you know, things one, one does. But as I said, institutional investors that uh, we talked about asset management, they are now the largest uh, in, in markets. As I said before, the, over half of shares are held by these money managers rather than investing directly Um and 75% over in, in, in the US. So they care a lot. First, they cared a lot about G. Why? G is sort of, um, our corporate governance. It's how do you kind of get your money back? <laughs> it's what, what's, uh, protecting the money for, to, to come back? Like, what's the board? Is the board, uh, representing shareholders? And so how is management incentivized? And then they look at how do I actually make sure I, I get, you know, that my voice in, into the corporation. So I could definitely, if I don't like something, I can exit the company, sell my shares. But increasingly, companies are starting to use voice. Vo uh, investors are starting to use voice, engaging with management, voting their shares, and, and so forth. So the panel I was sitting in right there at, here in Barcelona was around shareholder engagement of how, how is this done and what is the academic evidence? Does this work or not work? So the people gathered around here at the conference center, do they make a change or not make a change um, in, in actual how companies operate? How is it outside the U.S.? How is it in the U.S.? And, and so forth. So have, they've uh, made progress. I, I will 
I would say that that's been the genesis is mostly on G, but now you have more a new focus on environment and social, the ENS over uh, ESG. And um, sometimes it's also called corporate social responsibility, sort of the social responsibility. And we actually have a, a, one of our thought leaders in ESG, which is Ed Freeman, uh, my colleague at Darden, who coined the word uh, stakeholder theory, which is the idea that organizations must take other you know, stakeholder groups into account. The question as a finance <laughs> academic is, are you doing this at the cost of shareholders or are you actually enhancing value to the shareholders as well? And that's very much an open debate academically of are you doing well by doing good or, or not? And, and, you know, there's still uh, a lot um, there in, in terms of, you know, which I won't get into, but it's, it's sort of the, the object of study. It's um, do, do you do well? Because you can afford to uh, do good, or 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 is it uh, after you you know done well, then you're able to do good, or 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 do those two things uh, happen together? That's really a very large thing. So what I did is because there was all these questions around, I said, who is the organization out there that is actually you know doing ESG investing? So that's when I ran into the PI, this Principles for Responsible Investing. They're United Nations sponsored. They're the largest global network on institutional investors, over 3,000 signatories, over 100 trillion in AUM. I already lost count of the numbers because they were updating me. I think it's 130 trillion or whatever. And that first principle of PRI is that principle number one is we will incorporate ESG issues into investment strategies and decision-making processes. So that's principle number one is we will take this ESG into our investment. Principle number two is we engage with the, the companies and make stay, you know, as I said, I was speaking to that on that panel. And, and for me, most importantly, is the last principle, which is we will report the data. We will actually show you every year year in, year out, what progress we're making. So I was able to study it based on all the reporting data and um, that's what's featured in the Economist this weekend is that um, different investors, you know, report different levels of how much they're incorporating. How do they incorporate? Sometimes they screen out some stocks like tobacco, guns, etc. Sometimes they um, screen in some stocks, best-in-class uh, stocks. Sometimes they they just change the whole research or evaluation to incorporate these ESG factors. And sometimes they engage with the company, so they do all these different things. And we, what do we find is that you know we find that Europeans do, do and walk more the talk. So they actually, their portfolios perform uh, more better in ESG because of this. But the the core finding is, you know, not so much for the U.S. So there's a, a, a gap between U.S. signatories, their claims on ESG investing versus their actual practice of ESG investing. And that that's kind of where... Um, you know, I, I should stop at, at one point and not because I get super excited about all my research. But, you know, question number one is who, who's doing this? It grew out of Europe and many other places, but now it's, it's very big in the US. Question two, do they, because they've signed these principles, do they do anything different? Yes, on average they do, but less so 
in, in among the U.S. signatories. And number three is, um, you know, uh, what sort of explains these differences? And that's where the journalists um, may not get that third point because it takes a while, is that there are reasons why ESG investing may be behind the curve in the U.S. compared to other markets. But there, you have to actually read the article, right? You actually have to go beyond that, you know, top line in the in the newspaper and and drill down so i stopped there uh but that's that's kind of been my journey in, into into esg investing all right so we got a few more minutes here pedro i, I want to ask a couple more questions so um this is a little bit of a hot topic question um there's been a lot of commentary about esg being kind of the flavor of the week passing fad where do you think that this is going do you think it's here to stay um too soon to tell where what do you think i think it's here to stay but we're in this moment of reckoning right right now um i don't want to get any political in, in this but in the us you have people claiming esg is woke or you know that esg is um politically aligned with you know, a particular part of this spectrum and some people completely, you know, ESG is the only tool we have for addressing all the social and environmental problems. But, you, you know, I, could, I think we are at the, at the stage where, you know, organizations like the PRI, my own work and not many others in academia, the regulators and, and many people are taking an honest look at what is it that we're actually achieving, how much progress have we actually made, and is it, um, is it you know, really delivering on the, that sustainable goals, um, or is it detracting from actually us, meaning collectively as societies, asking our elected officials, et cetera, to actually tackle these problems. And so ESG is uh, really, I mean, this is, as as you said, it's a very hot topic. Um, you know, we had, um, we just, I just didn't know this would also come up in the economies for me, but, uh, but it, you know, it, it's, um, it's something that I think, uh, you know, we also bring to the classroom, as I said, I had originally brought in through the 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 alumni that work very very top alumni we have in this space. Um, but um, you know, also our students are working in these topics themselves. We're offering courses in the, in this topic, and I think it's um, some people claim that the future of investing is sustainable investing, and the reason is. I, if I had to throw one liner at, at this is you're kind of investing into world you want to retire into. So you have to make sure that world exists. So that is like the climate is and the social and, uh, you know, ev everything around you is a world with worth retiring into. So what's the purpose of, you know, uh, you know, go going back to the to the mission of of the center a little bit, what is the the purpose of of, uh, of the it's the preservation and growth of wealth for investors? But you have to you know to spend that wealth, it has to be in the world you want to live in. So so you have to deal with all these externalities. And and uh, my sense is, particularly with the new generation, that they're very passionate about this. I, I'm not as equally 
passionate as the next people after me, right? Because they're the ones that are going to live in that planet more than I am. And so uh, every every time I'm in the classroom and every time I, I speak to our students, I, I hear uh, you know a lot more passion into these topics than the ones I I personally have. It's an interesting point about this being sort of a private market solution to things exactly. that large public actors have been challenged to, to solve. You mentioned climate yeah. change is kind of yeah. major major things that are very yeah. top of mind. Yeah, it's kind of using the power of the purse, you know, the the power of money to um, to encourage behavior that is more environmentally sustainable or more socially sustainable. And it's still question mark. Where are we at? You know, early stages of this. Uh, but I again, I, I'm extremely excited about the, the this topics and. Um, and being clean and honest about it, that it's not just a marketing spin or, um, you know, a flavor of the day uh, type of thing, but it's really a, con uh, a sustain, sustainable investing approach. Last question here for you, Pedro. Um, we talked about a lot of books here, but some folks mm -hmm. may have listened to this conversation and gosh, I would love to learn more about some of the things that have been discussed. Are there any books you'd recommend? We generally ask for three books um, that you would recommend. So any further reading? Oh, sure. Um, so I have the, the books I was mentioning in the reading seminar. I picked three perhaps from those. The, the kind of one book I really liked um, was this new book on, on private markets called The Power Law. This is something I was not studying myself, but which is the growth beyond public markets. All that's all the platform companies that we talked about, the Facebooks, Apple, um, you know, Amazon and all, they all came out of kind of a Silicon Valley venture capital approach. So I was very interested in this book. It's been shortlisted by the Financial Times as a book of the year. I don't know if it will win, but it's really well um uh, research it's a little bit long uh, like uh, close to 500 pages but it's uh very worthwhile your your time uh, i'm reading this new book on esg investing which is called sustainable moving beyond esg to impact investing that now that's a, a topic i'm more interested in, given all i just said and then the third book i uh, it's called trillions um, how a band of Wall Street renegades invented the next fund and changed finance forever. That book was um, very uh, highly rated last at the end of last year, and that is the revolution of indexing and so forth. So those those three books I can go on forever because um, and then Bob and others Bob Bruners who are you know gracious readers they would give you fifty books. <laughs> Um, but I, I think, you know, staying with hot topics, one is the growth of private markets, which we did not talk too much today, but other experts at Darden um, and, and many classes on that. And that, the second is what I'm more an expert on, which is ESG investing. And number three is the growth of indexing and growth of passive manage, the, that last book called uh, Trillions. 
Well, thank you, Pedro. We covered so much ground here. Um, and to our, to our attendees, hopefully this was thought-provoking. It was interesting. It's been wonderful to host these uh, faculty conversations. We've got a couple more coming up in December, uh, a little bit later this month. So hopefully we'll see you online for those. And, and as always, if you're curious about this conversation, you want to go back and listen to it all over again, it will be out on our admissions podcast, Experience Darden and Exec MBA podcast in the coming weeks. So Pedro, safe travels back to the U.S. and to our attendees. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, everybody. This was really fun. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Pedro Matos, Professor of Business Administration and the Academic Director for the Richard A. Mayo Center for Asset Management here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Thank you.